Welcome to the Herd Mentality Podcast, an eclectic weekly mix of atheistic and humanistic conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, get an interesting conversation for you to listen to. I'm your host, Adam Reeks, and it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality Another Theist Edition. Uh, today with me I have a reverse heathen. I have at Grace with Salt, and your name is Tim. Hi, Tim. Hello. Thank you. Uh, whereabouts are you from? I am from the United States. I'm from Indiana. Rightio. Is that one of the especially religious ones? <laughs> well, we're considered a uh, a red state, so I don't know. You take that for what it is. <laughs> Indiana, that's southern, isn't it? My geography is not brilliant when it comes to the states. More northern. More northern. Right, so I got that wrong. And the belt. <laughs> Good thing we're talking uh, atheism and theism, something I'm actually reasonably well versed on. So, uh, yeah, so you're over in the States. What do you do? I am a Christian counselor. Rightio. So you counsel specifically Christians, or am I able to talk to you about my uh, problems? Kind of all over the, all over the spectrum, but uh, that's really my focus. Mm-hmm. And is that a volunteer thing, or are you employed doing this? What's your story? No, no, uh, uh, working towards employment, like an internship right ah. now. We'll jump straight into it. You got in touch with me on the Twitter webs, because uh, right. a gentleman I've been trying to get on this show for quite some time now, Eric Hovind, big fan of his work. Oh, he owes, <laughs> uh, at Joshua, damn it, uh, lunch, and I would like to get, in exchange for that lunch, I would like to have Eric on the show. Uh, but sure. do you do you follow Eric? Uh, yes, I do. And are you in agreement with the things he says? Uh, I believe most of them. Right. Most of them, yeah. I think he's based in Florida, I suspect. Or That's right. That's right. Somewhere around there, because there was the atheist monument that went up. Do you know anything about that? Mm-hmm. And he stood on it and preached, and yeah. Was that fair in your opinion? That was a little, little over the top, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let you have yours and we have ours, and you know. I kind of see the point he was trying to make, but okay. What was the point? He was trying to meet the people where they were, you know, go to where they're at instead of waiting for them to come to him. I think that was part of it. I'm not entirely sure. I don't profess to understand the uh, the thinking and the rationale behind what Eric does, or, or any any other person, in fact. I, I can only speak for myself, but what struck sure. me, and I suppose the question I'll ask you is, what would happen, in your opinion, if the shoe was on the other foot and an atheist were to stand up on it or to, were to climb a Christian cross and start yelling mm-hmm. that there is no God. Mm-hmm. Outrage, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> and what do the atheists do? I, I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't read up on it that much. Well, the atheists were actually quite passive about it. There wasn't a lot of... Oh, there, was, there was a bit of heated discussion, but there were yeah. no... You know, people weren't throwing bottles or pulling guns. <laughs> right. So right. I thought it was a, a very measured response from from the atheists and i thought they treated him quite respectfully given that he didn't treat them with the same respect would you agree yeah. i'm not i'm not entirely sure i don't know it was a it was a stunt i don't know if it went over like he thought it might there's something that i think you're probably aware of presuppositional apologetics do you know much about this yeah a little bit excellent i have my i have my own style probably a little bit different than eric mm-hmm. um, yeah i know what you're talking about yeah, because you've written quite a bit. You've got a, a website up, and if you, you're welcome to give out the uh, the address for it now, if you like. Yeah, it's it's just gracewithsalt.com. I've got a, probably around 150 articles on 
biblical authority, creation, evolution, lots of topics. Certainly some interesting stuff there that caught my eye. Just a, a first question to kick off with. Why do you think we won't be able to agree on something by the end of this call? And that's my presuppositional mm. statement. Why, why do I think? Yeah. Or do you think because, we might be able to agree on something? Because of worldview clash. Uh, because we start with a certain set of assumptions, and our assumptions are not provable. And so we can argue to we're blue in the face, uh, but in the end, neither of our assumptions are provable, and therefore there will be no conclusion. Both of us have to choose which we believe more faithfully. Okay, well, I'm prepared to start this with no assumptions. So you're welcome to, to convince me. I, and, and I say this to everybody, all the theists who come on the show, I'm prepared to believe if yep. something that can be presented in a worldview that is real to me, then I'm prepared, to, uh -huh. I'm prepared to accept it. So which God do you believe in and why? The Christian God, God of the Bible. And is there a reason? Uh, well, there's, there's several reasons. Number one, I mean, first and foremost, I believe that all evidence points that life does not ever come from non-life, and life has only come from existing life, and thus a creator is necessary in the, in the equation. We've got people trying to do experiments in laboratories to show how life can, can come about on its own, but it seems silly to me that it takes an intelligent scientist in a laboratory uh, with intelligent equipment to, to prove this. But that's, so every that's documented... You know, example of life has come from existing life. To claim anything else would be simply unscientific. But that scientist in the laboratory who's trying to um, create life, as you put it, I think yeah. if we were to look more closely at it, what they're doing is simulating the situation in which that life may be created. He's not having a direct hand in it, per se. With the laboratory sitting in and of itself, not even talking about where the equipment in the laboratory even came from but with the laboratory sitting in and of itself with no intervention from a human mind would it do it on its own is that scientist involved in the process if he is in any way that's intelligent design i would disagree <laughs> okay with science and i'm sure you're aware of this the idea of it is to do something that can be replicated by others or sure. or reproduce something that is replicatable in nature which I think I is what we're talking about yep. with creating life. And I suspect the study that we're both thinking of is the one trying to assemble amino acid, basic amino acids using uh, electricity and other means. But those circumstances have been replicated in that laboratory. They, they take place out in the real world. Mm -hmm. Regardless of whether it takes place in the laboratory or the uh, out in the real world, the, the result is the same, is it not? Well, then why did we need a laboratory to prove that? Why don't we just go observe it in the real world? We do observe it in the real world. Oh, we, we, then we didn't need a laboratory to do it, so I guess I'm wrong then. Life comes from non-life. I, I, that's the first I've heard of that. Just a little bit more background on, on you. Do you believe in evolution at all? Depends on exactly how you define evolution. There is change, absolutely, you know, from generation to generation. Things are changing and adapting to their environments. That's That's a given. It would be... It'd be ridiculous to claim anything else. Now, if by evolution you mean we started from molecules and now we have man through all these different transitions, no, I don't believe that. Okay, how old is the Earth? I would say around 6,000 years. That'd be my belief. Based on what evidence? Well, based on what I see in the world, and I have no reason to doubt otherwise. Uh, my presupposition is that the Bible is correct, and I believe the Bible is correct because I don't see any reason not 
to believe the Bible is correct. I guess I'll just leave it at that I, for that. <laughs> the Bible is the literal word of God. Inspired word of God, yes. But it's open to interpretation. Well, it's obviously open to interpretation, absolutely. <laughs> Some people base their beliefs on the actual sentence structure that's put in these books. So the Quran, for example, mm -hmm. allows people to go and get stoned and raped and murdered and so forth. And there's all sorts of cool stuff that you can get away with. But in sure. our Bible, or the, the Bible you're talking about, there's also some pretty brutal stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How do you uh, reconcile that with, if it tells us pretty specifically that it's okay to keep slaves and that you shouldn't eat shellfish yeah. and uh, you shouldn't wear materials made from more than one different type the of God, fiber and so well, forth? It's, uh, the God of the Bible, especially of the Old Testament, did allow his people of a certain time and of a certain culture to go through some pretty brutal things that we wouldn't normally attribute with God, especially the God we know since the New Testament. And that's where I think a lot of the confusion is. Uh, there's a very there's a very big, 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 huge change that happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So God's morality uh, changed. Not God's morality, but the way the world works changed. It's a difference between law and grace. In the Old Testament, we were under a specific law because we didn't have the forgiveness of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and things like that in the Old, in the Old Testament times. They had to follow a strict code to be in compliance with God. Now, under the New Testament, the world is completely different now. Right. So the, the rules like the shellfish and the different don't wear clothes of different matching fabrics and things like this, they don't apply because we don't have to follow a set of codes anymore to be considered good in God's eyes anymore. It's not, we don't follow that to be good anymore. So that change took place at the time the New Testament came into play? At the time of, of Jesus' sacrifice. I've written it down here and it's staring at me. This 6K, your 6,000-year-old world that we live in. Yes. Would you explain the evidence such as uh, dinosaur fossils and so forth? Oh, we, being... Yeah, creationists like myself, I mean, we just, we love dinosaur fossils. We have no problem with dinosaurs whatsoever. Dinosaur fossils and fossils in general uh, speak to us of a major catastrophic event that happened sometime in our past. And to us, we say, aha, look, the flood of Noah. You know, what would you expect if the flood of Noah happened? Well, you'd expect tons and tons, billions of preserved dead things buried in rock layers all over the world, which is exactly what we find. It's like a prediction, and we find it. So it confirms it to us. That's baffling to me. I find that really hard to get my head around because I've interviewed a, a paleontologist on this show. Uh, uh -huh. I've interviewed several scientists, in fact, on uh, episode uh, episode five, if you're curious okay. to go back and have a listen to it, because we discuss evolution and fossils. I won't repeat their arguments there. I'll try and construct one on my own uh, sure. using my limited brain capacity. To me, it doesn't make a lot of sense because the evidence suggests that the dinosaurs were significantly older. Than well, the, the time of the, of the Great Flood, which we talk about, and that was only relatively recent event in about 4400 years ago okay so that was not long after the creation of the earth as it were correct right is it possible that the earth could be older not much not too much right maybe i've heard anywhere from six to ten thousand years depending on how you do the math 
Um, but that really doesn't help the evolutionist position any. <laughs> <laughs> the evolutionist, I think, has some pretty clear evidence to suggest that the world is significantly older than that. You said you said one thing in there that I wanted to respond to. You said the evidence suggests that the Earth is much older. And I would challenge that in saying that I don't think the evidence itself suggests anything. I believe a certain scientist suggests things about that evidence. Creationists and evolutionists, I do not believe, have different evidence. We don't have different evidence. We have the same evidence, but we have different interpretations. And those interpretations are fueled by our starting assumptions. So there's evidence that's chosen to be ignored, however, on the creationist side. No, I would disagree. So the, I would say, so the creationists... I would say reinterpreted. Right. I think what we're talking about here is you're entitled to your own interpretation, but we can't be entitled to our own facts. Mm -hmm. And the facts, okay. the facts are that we can date the fossils and remains and rocks to be hundreds of thousands, millions of years old. Those dates, though, are based on assumptions that are unprovable. Explain to me more how that works. Okay. Well, let me take... You know, base, the basic idea of radiometric dating, it's really, in my eyes, it's, it's glorified extrapolation. You know, we take a decay rate that we've measured in the present here. It's constant. It's unchanging. We have no reason to believe it's changing. I, I get that. And we take that, and basically, we extrapolate it back, and we find a date for how old that rock or that fossil or whatever it is is. Mm-hmm. It's all rock. We don't actually date fossils. We date the rocks around them. Correct. Um, so it's all rock. So it's extrapolation, but that extrapolation is based on the assumption that our decay rate has never changed, that we know the starting condition that, for all intensive purposes for this discussion, basically, you know, started at zero and added up. And so, or, or now we're at zero and we extrapolate back and get how old it is. That's a lot of assuming. We don't really know that that decay rate is constant. We know it's constant today, but we don't know it's been constant for all of history. I'm not a, a scientist, clearly, so <laughs> I'm not qualified to discuss this. However, I'm sure if, if I were to dig around, I could get a scientist who would have the answer for me in a heartbeat. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I suppose what I'd like to point out is that when it comes to stuff like this, I defer to the most appropriate source I can find, the most reliable sure. source I can find, something that's peer-reviewed. So if a scientist were to do the same experiment in Japan mm -hmm. as a scientist in the US, they'd come mm -hmm. to the same conclusions with the same data. Correct. If they start with the same assumptions, yes, they would. If they start with the same assumptions. Yes. That's the presuppositional part of my argument. Do you think scientists are going in there knowing what the answer is going to be before they do the experiment? Um, they have an idea of where it should fall, and a lot of times they get results that don't fall on that and they exclude them, but that's kind of besides the point. Um, <laughs> but there would be a I don't think it's that... a massive conspiracy, no. <laughs> I think they're going off what they believe is true. They have no reason to doubt the constant rate of decay. They just have no reason to doubt that. I, I give that to them. I believe I have a reason to doubt that. And thus, they're saying, my radiometric dating proves this the world is 4.5 billion years old. I don't have to accept that. So what proof do you have of, say, God that encourages you to believe that I don't have or that I can't have? Well, <laughs> that's that's the age-old question, right? That's my, where my presuppositional comes in. Now, do I have reasons for my faith? Absolutely. I started to go into that. You know, First of all, I believe the, the universe, the world, life in general, 
requires a creator because we have no scientific reason to say elsewise. Or that's probably not a word elsewise, but you know what I mean? <laughs> um, all life has always been observed to come from life. Um, we've never observed anything else. So therefore, if I walk into a forest and I see a painting hanging on a tree, I'm not going to assume that it, it generated itself there. I'm going to know that it had a painter. That's the obvious conclusion. And until there's some scientific thing that, that's the thing, though, there can never be a scientific thing that shows that because I've already pointed that out. It's going to take a designer to make that experiment. So first and foremost, the, the world needs a designer to come into being because everything we've observed requires a designer to come into being that has come into being. So to, to suggest anything else, to me, it is unscientific. It's I can't support that. There's no reason I can support that. So then I start looking at the various religions and belief systems, and I find the one that I find the most consistency in and that I can test and check out for myself, and that's where I got to. Have you ever experienced God? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How so? Oh, every, every single day. Every single day, without a doubt. Now, my experiences, though, I, I don't believe will do anything for you or your listeners. I think More than likely, be I'll be ridiculed shot. to some kind of hallucination <laughs> or something along those lines. I'm used to it. Uh, well, you, you might notice that I'm not ridiculing. I'm, I, I'm genuinely curious in understanding what prompts you to come to certain conclusions. Let's hear it. <laughs> Well, yes, I've had several experiences uh, with God, with uh, with the spiritual realm in general. You know, things that I can't explain, I cannot give, and I can't explain it. There's no explanation for it. And they could only uh, have been God. They couldn't have been something that perhaps you couldn't explain? They you could, could probably give an explanation for it, but I was the one that was there. I was the one that experienced it, and you weren't, and therefore, you know, any chance to explain it to me isn't really going to work because you weren't there. It's like me trying, you know, I don't know if, if you're married or not. I'm not. You know, if you were, it's like me trying to explain that when you fell in love with your wife, it was really something else. Well, what right do I have to say that about your experience? I don't have any right to say that. Well, that's an experience in that, yeah, there's an understanding of how people come to those conclusions. It, being yep. able to say that they're in love. There's chemical that, reactions that take place. My experiences with God is what drew me in the first place to my Christianity. But since then, I have developed a very detailed, informed faith. You know, I think it does start as a blind faith for a lot of people, and that's okay. But it's not okay if it just stays there, and that's all you have. If you have no reason then to give for your faith, then after that. You mentioned Noah earlier. How old is the oldest person you've ever met? How old is the oldest person I've ever met? Yeah. I don't know. 90-something? Hmm. The record for the oldest person, as best we can understand, it's about 115, 120, I think, in that vicinity. I'd uh, say somewhere in the 900s. And that, and you'd consider that evidence? Yeah, it's a, it's a historical uh, written record of it, yeah. Historical and uh, written record. Absolutely. There's plenty of written records for other different gods that... Sure. are also historical. Yep. But would you consider those to be of equal credibility? No, not necessarily. Um, everything that I have studied, and I wouldn't consider my, myself an expert on comparative religions, but I do not see the coherency. Um, I see a lot of contradiction. I see something that just doesn't explain the world we live in today. And I see the world we live in today explained very clearly, very accurately by the God of the Bible. See... I don't see it that way. I see the people who wrote 
the stories of the Bible, which mm-hmm. happened much after the facts that took place, if we mm-hmm. can call them facts. But in my experience, with the best medical science we have today, our mm-hmm. lifespans don't approach anywhere near 900 years old. And you're prepared to accept I that. Agree. As, as I would a, agree. You're prepared to accept that because it was written in a book. I accept that today lifespans do not go over 110, 120, somewhere in there. I accept that. That doesn't mean they never have. Do any other books other than the Bible talk about people having lifespans like this? I do not know. I think there'd be very few. I don't think there's a lot of written record from that time frame. And yet the information that has been recorded in the form of the Bible, you consider to be accurate. I, see, this is what I can't reconcile. Back, right back to the first point at the beginning of the call, we, we may not be able to agree on something. Oh, yeah. Okay. That, that would yep. be something I can't agree on. So the the Bible say that you know the earth was created in six days. Yes. The common argument I hear from creationists, and I, I had the Jehovah's Witnesses at my door recently, invited them in. Lovely people. I think they're a bit terrified of me because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I gave them uh, perhaps some information that they weren't aware of previously. The argument he gave me for creating the earth in, in six days was that a day doesn't mean the same thing as it means in the bible back then so a day could have been ten thousand years could have been a million years could have been a billion years that's a problem though they've just compromised their own bible by saying that yeah but they and i explain (laughs) completely how they just compromised it the only reason to allow for longer days to expand those days of creation the only reason is to allow evolution into the picture okay uh, but once you allow evolution into the pr- picture, you've destroyed the entire biblical message. Evolution allows for death and suffering before the first sin of Adam and Eve. That's a very big problem, because that makes God the God of death and suffering. Nature is bloody in tooth and claw. I have reason to uh, understand that, given the depictions of dinosaurs I've seen in Jurassic Park, and it's in a movie, so it must be true, (laughs) that there was quite a lot of brutality that took place a long time before 6,000 years ago. I'm really, (laughs) I'm really trying here. (laughs) Really trying to... It's fine. It's fine. I'm really trying to understand how, with the masses of evidence that are freely available Mm -hmm. for evolution, Mm -hmm. you're unable to accept that. (laughs) Let me give you just a simple reason Overall arching reason why. I think there's difference between historical science and observational science. And what I mean by that is I think there's science that we do here in the present where we can observe and we can repeat and we can replicate it and we can test it over and over and over to show that it's absolutely true and factual and it works. And that's like the stuff that puts us on the moon. It puts computers on our desks, uh, all that stuff, the flu vaccine. It's that. It's all that stuff, right? But then there's historical science, and historical science, it takes what has happened, what's over, what's done, and it tries to now interpret it based on what we know today, okay? But we can't replicate it. We can't observe it. So it's a problem. Is that real science if we can't – you said it yourself earlier, science is about observation and replication, but if we can't observe these things we're saying happened in the past, if we can't replicate it, is that science? I think we mix them. And so that is what says, convicts people to say, well, I believe in this science here. Why would I deny that science? Science is science, right? But if we break it apart and say, hey, but look at this science about evolution, you know, historical evolution that we can't see anymore, we can't replicate it, is that, you know, we really have to ask ourselves, is that really science? 
I, I think you'd enjoy a discussion with a scientist. <laughs> if I were to bring on somebody who's... <laughs> I've, uh, I've had several, absolutely. You, have you debated scientists before? Uh, mostly online, yes, but yep. That might be interesting. All right, well, let's shimmy along to something a little bit more philosophical. How does God benefit your life here on Earth? How does God benefit my life here on Earth? Yeah. To me, God is about giving me lasting joy that never fades. People, circumstances can constantly rob me of my happiness um, if I put my trust in that. If my trust and my hope is in my job or it's in even my wife or, you know, my friends or my hobbies and that lets me down, I'm nothing. You know, I fall apart. If that's where my hope, if that's where my real hope lies, um, I think a lot of people think that this life is a pursuit of happiness. Um, but I say happiness is fleeting. Happiness comes and goes. What's going to happen to you when your happiness is gone, when that thing that gives you happiness is taken from you? But God is the one thing that never changes, is a solid state, and I can put my hope in him. And no matter what is ripped from me here on earth, what happens to me, I haven't lost my joy. There's a contradiction there. You said God never changes, and yet God changed considerably between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. God, his character, which is way more philosophical than I'm expertised in, that did not change. No. The way he worked with his people did. And now we live under a new covenant. Absolutely. Now, if that covenant were to change again, which I don't foresee, then I would have to reevaluate. But as for now, we live under a covenant of grace and mercy and so you're not um, expecting an end of days arrangement with horsemen and uh, oh yeah the, the dead no or... absolutely that'll be the that'll that will come and that'll be the next one but what? that doesn't mean what? God's character who he is you know yesterday today and forever changes just how he interacts with his people does change why do you think God has an interest in torturing us this way then torturing us how exactly flooding the planet for example mm -hmm. if, if that story's to be believed which the evidence we have to date doesn't comply with. <laughs> The flood was a sign of God loving his people. That's a very odd interpretation, you see, because if I loved somebody, I wouldn't drown them. Right. He saved the eight people that were left on the earth that were following him. The entire planet. I mean, we can't imagine this today because we have millions and billions of believers, right? We can't imagine. The entire planet was corrupt. The entire planet was evil. Save one family. One family, and he saved them and wiped the earth clean. He, he saved humanity in what may have affected them and just ruined the entire thing. He saved them and started over with them. Baffling. Again, you just seem to have so much faith, and faith is a term that we both understand quite clearly here, sure, vested sure. in that one source. Well, well, with the flood story, it's really not that one source, is it? Uh, the flood story is actually repeated in several cultures around the world. Now, it, the details differ from culture to culture, but ah, nearly so every culture on the planet has a flood story in its history. That's a very broad and sweeping statement to make. Yeah, I mean, you can look it up. Uh, I don't have the, the link handy, but Answers in Genesis.org, they've got a chart that details the different cultures of the world and their flood stories and how they line up with the Bibles, like, Okay, they did have this detail, but they didn't have this, but they did have this. And it's baffling to see how many line up with these different details. So why is the Christianity that you've arrived at the correct one? Why is it the correct <laughs> um, religion? Where, where is what do you mean? Okay, there's other 
cultures, uh, other religious sects that yeah. have similar stories, right. but they can't be right? Do you mean like my creationist version of Christianity? Because there's obviously Christians who believe in evolution and the old earth, right? E- evidently. So, so why is yours more believable? Because mine doesn't create contradictions in the text. Uh, when you have an, a Christian who believes in an old earth and believes in evolution, you've undermined your Bible from the very first chapter. You've ripped pages out of the Bible. There's certainly there's pages of information that just can't be correct if you believe that. So therefore, you've based your belief on this book that you've ripped to shreds. I'd argue I that go- you've done exactly the same thing by not following the Bible to the letter in terms uh, of uh, ex- explain. keeping slaves. I presume you don't keep slaves. Perhaps you do. I don't know. Maybe that's your thing. That's Old Testament. <laughs> it's Old Testament. So, so the Old Testament's not right. We can't use that. The Old Testament was right for that culture and that time. There's lessons for us to learn from it. God did not want his people to keep slaves. He allowed it for a purpose at that time. He was not for slavery. He was simply saying, if that's what you want, here's how you do it right for now. Right. And you believe that is a good God? That was a God that was working or a purpose at that time to show us certain things. That's some, do you believe that, that you go through trials and you, you do things that are foolish and you learn from them? Oh, I do it every day. I learn every day. That's um, what that. That's all that is. I have an inbuilt uh, morality based on my experiences that, that suggests that keeping slaves at all is a bad thing. Right. So do I. Yeah, absolutely. Baffling. <laughs> that a God that you call good could have inflicted that on a people. Again, God did not demand that people kept slaves. It never said he was for it. It simply said, you want it, I can't change your mind. If you're going to do it, treat them this way. And he laid out some rules for keeping the slaves. Evolution versus God, you've got a review of it up on your website. Tell me about the 25 words or less version of this. Do you agree with it? Do you agree with Ray Comfort? Um, Ray Comfort is kind of uh, controversial in many ways. When I first heard he was doing an evolution movie, I was kind of concerned because some of his arguments I'd heard before, I was not very didn't think they were the best arguments that are out there. The movie itself, I thought, was done well. I didn't really say too much in my review, other than, you know, I think that he did a very good job, and obviously my opinion is biased. (laughs) The last one I'll quiz you on is uh, a big challenge to rational atheists. This is one that's fairly high up the the top of your webpage, so I'm guessing it's a relatively recent post, August the 30th, yeah? Would you like to describe a little bit? Sure, yeah. No, the big the, the challenge to atheists, the rational atheists, uh, the ones that think through their worldview, um, is it's a presuppositional argument. Um, it's are you willing to admit that your entire worldview hinges on this assumption of uniformitarianism? And that's a big word that basically means the present is the key to the past. The way the way we see things work today, like radiometric dating, like the decay rates, is the way things have always worked. And therefore, we can decide things about the past that we haven't seen based on what we have seen today. Now, that's an assumption. I would say that's an assumption. You said, you said you, you're willing to come to this conversation with no assumptions, but I would say that's an assumption. You don't really know that. You have logical reasons to believe that, but you don't really know it. And if uniformitarianism 
fails at all, your entire evolutionary worldview falls apart. I'd suggest that the people listening to the show jump on here and have a quick read through, find out a little bit more about the arguments here. And do you do you welcome feedback? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, for the first year of my blog, I had comments closed, but uh, then I decided to open them and uh, believed I could start handling them. A lot of creationist sites do not allow comments, and that's been a fairly controversial thing. So I don't know a lot that do, but yeah, I do. The other half of the thing that I didn't really go into, you know, when you read the blog, you'll see this, is I believe, because I believe the Bible is true history, I believe the Bible points out three events that if they're true, that's where uniformitarianistic assumptions fail. And that's the key. You can't take evolution and say, now look, the Bible's false. Because we're talking about two different histories all together. You can't prove either one. I'm not ever claiming that I can prove creationism, but I don't believe evolution is provable either. All right. Well, it's not within my means to prove it to you over the electric telephone here. <laughs> so at Grace with Salt, thank you very much for coming on The Herd Mentality. Uh, I must say that I'm probably a little more baffled than I was at, at the beginning, and I think it's just because our... Our worldviews, as you said right at the very beginning, our worldviews are so different. Yes. But it's a very interesting conversation nonetheless. Quick shout-out for any other projects you've got that you'd like to pass along? Oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> no, not really. Just come on out to the, the site, gracewithsalt.com. Like I said, 150 different articles on all kinds of topics all over the place. You want to learn more about you know, what I believe about dinosaurs and how I show that dinosaurs are in the Bible and all these things, yeah. It's all there. It looks like a very comprehensive site. I'm going to go and have a bit more of a read and uh, <laughs> find out some more truth. Very well. Sure. So thanks again for coming on, and uh, no doubt I'll speak to you on Twitter. Thanks. All right, great. Tim for coming on and kicking my bum. Today's epic bonus material is Kai Matai, a biologist who's not only good at looking at bones and stuff, but also qualified to kick my bum on debating tactics. Let's see how I go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality bonus material. And with me today, I have Kai Matai. Hello. Hi. Thank you very much for joining me. And uh, you're here today to school me on where I went wrong. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. So there are a couple of points from the, the episode that we just listened to that you thought you might address with me and perhaps give me a couple of pointers on wh what I can do next time. Sure. I, I think you've got to realise when you, you're talking to a young earth creationist, they're actually often quite prepared and have a lot of um, things on the tip of their fingers they can throw out. You know, they're not going to be, be stupid or, or the like here. You know, they're typically well-schooled in, in what they believe. So it does take a bit of preparation, I think, to also get onto them as well. Mm -hmm. the, the challenge, though, they have is, is they're not just um, really coming up against modern science. They're also coming up against um, early creationists' belief. If we go back to the early 1800s, a lot of their ideas about a young earth had already been chucked away by creationists of the, that period. Um, that, that looked at the fossil evidence, the geological evidence, distribution of animals, and kind of said, nah, this, this doesn't work. And in fact, that sort of proposed um, different centres creation and different centres speciation to, to sort of try and, and accommodate this all. Right. All right. So it, it is kind of, I think, fascinating sort of looking at um, how, how their positions spinning around to try and fit all of this. Okay. So first thing they're obviously going to do is, is try and appear reasonable 
to you, young earth creationist, because um, you know you kind of come across as being barking mad. You've got to go. Okay, I've got a reasonable case here. I, I want to convince you that my my perspective is is good. So the um thing is they're, they're usually pretty good at that. And what you've got to do, I think, is is dig a bit deeper. So the first thing you got hit with was you know that they're, they're into science. And I, I think when you started and the discussion veered on to abiogenesis, you, you figured out that they were wrong because um, the, the guy was going, you know, I've never seen life come from non-life. So straight appeal to ignorance. He was. Trying trying to misrepresent the science and you got an instinct that was wrong i think because what he tried to say was you know the lab experiments that we're doing was was like creation okay if, if we actually do get life in the laboratory this is evidence of intelligent design and creation and and you balked at that and i think for a good reason because if we talk about creation right that's that's an intercession in nature, right? It's something that suspends the laws of nature. It makes something happen that would not otherwise happen. Right. What do we do in a lab? We let nature take its course. We just set it up and we don't make an intercession. We don't do anything. We just set up the conditions and watch what happens. So there's, there's no equivalence between an act of creation where you, you move in and, and you make things happen that wouldn't otherwise and, and sitting back and watching things occur. Now, Kind of let him get away with that, but I mean, that, that was one thing that kind of struck, struck me. He was trying to sort of move what he was thinking into, into the scientific case. You know, that this, is, this is all the same. It's, it's in line. Well, so well no, it isn't. You know, I, I did you get distracted. I, I got sure. distracted by it. Given that I didn't have a response that I felt was reasonable at hand, I moved sure. on. And I, look, I did the reverse gish gallop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I, I, abiogenesis is, is a, a subject that's difficult to really... Um, do well unless you're well prepared, because what it what it really is is it's 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 a reasonable hypothesis of how life began, but it's one that's backed by a lot of molecular evidence, and that's really hard if you're not in science to to, to start talking about. Now, what we do know with abiogenesis is almost every cellular component we can think of can be generated in abiotic conditions. You know, we're not just talking about amino acids anymore. We're talking about cell walls. We're talking about sugars. We're talking about bases. We're talking about everything you actually need to put together a cell is, is pretty much being cracked. And, and none of that would really seem to be possible, I think, if there, you needed a special creation. I mean, it would be easy to, to frustrate everything at the first step. But nonetheless, I, I think that's a, it's a tricky, tricky area to, to launch into uh, because... Unless you're up to things like iron sulfur reduction chemistry, you're not going to be able to, to really. Which I'm not. That's not my yeah. specialty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I think you you hit the nail on the point that he was trying to equate an intercession by a creator with a laboratory experiment, but yeah, you, you couldn't push that very far. Mm. But it was a good example, I think, of that he was he was trying to sort of misrepresent what the science was about. Okay, so how could I have best negotiated the point? Um, shut it down. I, I don't think it's actually a good area to try and get your, yourself bogged into. This has nothing to do with young earth creationism and it has nothing to do with evolution. This is the origin of life. Mm. It's, it's an area that we are still a lot of uncertainties about and that, I think, creates... It creates loopholes on both sides to... to yeah, you're not going to get get anywhere um, other than you know being able to say, well, okay, you know, you're not using the science correctly here. I think that the main problem we have with talking about abiogenesis is, is a lot of these creationists think the experiment stopped with the Miller-Urey experiments of the 1950s. So what was that experiment? 
Just that was um, creating amino acids out of um, simple compounds by putting electric charge. Right, so I'll, that's True. the one I was yep. referencing. I knew it was somewhat yep. right. Yeah, I thought actually for an Australian, you might have mentioned the Murchison meteor as well. Not familiar with that one. Um, meteor falls from space and they recovered amino acids and other organic com- compounds ah, from it. Yes, so the, the seeding of life. Yeah, and, and what that also tells us is, is that these organic compounds form almost everywhere. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we actually know there are lots of ways to make amino acids. We know we can make um, things like DNA bases, like adenine by a bit of hydrogen cyanide and a few other things. We know we can create peptides by condensation of amino acids. There's lots and lots. But suddenly now we're in, in I think, sort of fairly rigorous science ground. Mm. Well, let's uh, gallop along to perhaps the next topic. Yeah, I think there was also sort of a general, general thing that he was putting a smokescreen up on language, and you weren't pulling him up on that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, he would sort of make claims like dinosaurs fossils are predicted by young Earth creationism, and you let that kind of slide. And I'm going, what? You know, why? <laughs> Look at the early creationists. You know, that really puzzled them. You know, why would a benevolent God just wipe out all of these species? You know, did they do too much gay sex? Did they eat too much shellfish? You know, what was it that would cause such antagonism? And, you know, it isn't really a prediction. It's not a prediction to go, you know, some people found some stuff under the ground and you go, oh, oh we knew it was there all along. Mm. I mean, a prediction is, is like finding Tiktaalik up in the Arctic Circle. It's, it's like using the foraminifera, tiny marine fossils, to work out where oil deposits are, which... which oil companies do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not going, oh, you found some fossils? Oh, yeah, yeah. We knew that were there all along. So you know, that was like a flexible use of the language. He also discussed, we expect that the dinosaur bones would be there. Yeah. There was a point that he raised that baffled me, but it was along the lines of how we'd expect that a god could have placed them there for us to find them. Yeah. I mean, that, then you're having a, a very duplicitous god. Now, I think the other problem is, you know, he's talking about, you know, we're into science, but, but science doesn't use ad hoc unfalsifiable hypotheses. This is an anathema to science. We don't go, for example, um, gosh, perhaps radioactive decay is, is not constant. Maybe it's variable. That's, that's an ad hoc hypothesis. You know, that's, it's unfalsifiable because apparently God can do anything he likes. So that's where I went wrong with that. Part of his language was actually to take, let's, let's talk about assumptions and we go, scientists use assumptions and we're using assumptions and they're just kind of like different assumptions. Well, you know, we're, we're not really. What he's trying to do is, is shove these ad hoc ideas and his assumptions and saying they're the same as our deductions, which are not assumptions. You know, deductions use a lot of science, a lot of evidence, a lot of known facts about how things work to, to make predictions and can be tested. I think uh, where I perhaps got a little bit confused there was that the way Tim phrased it was that although we can observe something taking place now, we have no reasonable way of proving that that's the way it's always been. So with yeah. radioactive decay, for example. Yeah. I, I can see why why that would confuse things. I think that played to a strategy of, of trying to limit the discussion to one line of evidence because we just don't use radioactive decay. And again, this is an ad hoc hypothesis. How would you test this claim? Right? We, we can test the claim that radioactive decay is constant by going, okay, you know, how does it match to other evidence? And if you think radioactive decay rates are different, you know, do some lab experiments, show us how. Now, also, you know, we, we have a really big problem when we start saying the laws of nature are being changed 
changed at some some cosmic whim. We've never seen this occur. By anyone's definition, that would be a miracle, just the laws of nature be suspended. Yeah, and, and I think one of the problems is, you know, we, we know, or pretty, we can be pretty sure it's got to be constant because, A, that's the laws of nature that, as we understand them, so there's no reason to vary that. And, B, um, the Earth's surface would be uninhabitable if it wasn't. Right. Okay, what does Tim, Tim argue? Okay, well, we've got to somehow get all that radiation and these isotopes, and instead of occurring that over 4 billion years, we want to make that occur over just a few centuries. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a lot of radiation. To give you some idea, when, when Lord Kelvin calculated how old the Earth was, and he was a Christian writing in the late 1800s, he said, Earth, based on the cooling rates, must be 25 to 40 million years old. Okay, so that's 200 years ago. Uh, oh, he yep. didn't have access to... Well, he didn't know about radioactive decay, which is what Rutherford came up with. Right. So, so Rutherford pointed out this, this radiation generates a lot of heat, this generates you know, a fantastic amount of heat. So an estimate without radiation of 40 million years becomes 4 billion years. That's how much radiation we've had in that Earth's crust. So you can imagine releasing all of that radiation in just a short space of time. We'd look like the surface of Mercury. Yeah, absolutely impossible. The radiation levels would be, you know, we're not talking you know, doubling or whatever. We're talking orders of magnitude greater and we know that life could not sustain. So that's, that's one of the problems young Earth creationists have. If we look at how much radiation we need to, to calibrate to 6,000 years, you know, it's just uninhabitable. Mm. We couldn't survive this much lethal radiation. Fairly good reason not to believe that radiation rates have, have been different over time. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, is uh, we can look at things like well, C14. C14's got basically a f- almost a 6,000-year half-life. So we could take all of these fossils... And we should expect to find the same amount of C14 because they've all been laid down at the same time. Right. There's no C14. Because? C14's only got a half-life of 6,000 years, so there's nothing left to basically look at things over about a million years old. Right. So you mentioned this previously. The last time you came on the show, that was your one key point to be able to prove that humans and dinosaurs didn't walk the Earth at the same time. Oh, well, that was actually another one. It's the DNA, oh, sorry, which DNA, is an DNA. Ind- ind- independent line to right. the fossils. Because we know that molecules, you know, DNA degrades at a rate also. And we know that rate is independent of the radiometric rate. Right. It's got nothing to do with radio. So we also know, again, we can look at C14. There's nothing. We can look outside. We're not a radioactive wasteland. We can look at the, the DNA. There should be lots and lots and lots of it. Mm. There's nothing. So none of this is evidence that you, you, is, you know, I think, interpretable by assumption. So, there's, yeah, there's a lot of mental gymnastics involved to... Yeah. To be able to will yourself into believing that. Yeah. Personally, I would also move the subject on to trilobites rather than dinosaurs. Okay. They're all trained about dinosaurs because everybody asks about dinosaurs. So I think if you want to, want to test them, move on to something like trilobites. If we look at trilobites, trilobites sort of first appear in the Cambrian. So it's about 500 million years ago by our calculations. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so this is fun. Okay, so if we look at the earliest life, we look at the geological column, what do we find? We find that the first creatures in the geological column are marine creatures. So now we're trying to say that we have this massive global flood and the first things to die are the creatures that live in water. So we're going to wipe out everything that lives in water by covering it with water. Doesn't make a lot of sense. No. And that's basically why the early creationists, you know, the, the creationist scientists in the 1800s that kind of, you know, did leave the churches and institutes and do field work, you know, realised that this was not possible. You know, we couldn't explain it with one flood. Okay, so we look at the, the, 
the, the trilobites. And then we go, okay, now we need a mechanism to actually wipe them out. So what's it going to be? And we've actually got about 60 families of these things to wipe out. Now that's incredibly hard. We're talking about invertebrates. And humans are a savage extinction machine, and we haven't managed to wipe out any families of invertebrates. Yeah, right. So this has got to be, now we have a global event that's got to wipe out 60 families of these things in one go. All right, the second thing it's got to do is it's got to do it in such a way that it doesn't kill any modern crustacea. Because modern crustacea, crabs and shrimps and all these things, live in the same habitat now as trilobites did back then. So not only do we have to drown all the trilobites, we have to do it in such a way that nothing else gets drowned at the same time. This sounds like a very difficult challenge. Yeah, we don't have a mechanism to do it. Um, I mean, you can cover some with mud, maybe suffocate a few, but we're talking, you know, 60, 60 families of these things. Then we've got to do another thing. We've got to do it in such a way that we leave their f- track fossils. We've got all sorts of what we call ichnofossils, crawling around in the mud, and their fossils have been left off their, their f- tracks. So now you need a, a global flood that's going to wipe out 60 families of trilobites. It's got to somehow spare every crab, crayfish, shrimp, also allegedly in the same habitat and it's got to be so violent to wipe out all of these things and at the same time be so gentle that the tracks of these animals don't get washed away <laughs> right and, and you can you know you know australia you've got the um Idiocaran life forms you know these are precambrian you know these are marine animals that are only known basically from their fossil impressions you know, how, how do you get a flood that's you know going to do all this. So, I mean, so when we talk about we predict these things as a creationist, I mean, I've got no idea how you do it. And, and then you've got to also do a very selective kill because it's going to be based on things like the number of ribs. We know that, you know, there's a general increase in the number of ribs of trilobites. So somehow trilobites that have fewer ribs are more vulnerable than f- fossils that have species that have more ribs. So we've, we've not just got to be able to wipe them all out in such a way that every crab and everything stays intact. We've got to be violent enough that we can wipe out whole families of them, which is, again, really, really challenging. We've got to do it in such a way that the tracks remain, and we've got to do it in such a way that it correlates to the number of ribs on every one of these animals. So if you've got eight ribs, you you dive before an animal that's got nine ribs. Right. So I'm I'm racking my brain here thinking of a gentle way to kill certain species and not others. And the only way I can think of doing that is creating a virus that targets certain, uh, using genetic engineering, certain species. Yeah, but again, we have no evidence of any viruses being potent enough that they could wipe out 60 families of anything. Yeah, um, right. I mean, it's, it's a very ad hoc, untestable idea, mm. um, you know, contrary to what we believe. Mm. Okay, this is why I like trilobites. I mean, cause trilobites are fantastic because, you know, they're the first animals to die, according to the flood theory. Right. I mean, they live in water. I mean, you, how do you kill an animal first that lives in water? By covering it with water. And if we look at the actual densities of, of trilobites, you know, um, they must have been about waist deep around the Mediterranean and, and beaches on you know, Palestine and the like because there is just so many of them. We have incredibly high densities of, of things like Elathria, King Eye or the like. You know, that they'd be all over the place. Mm. How, how the Bible could ever miss trilobites would be astonishing. I don't think they were mentioned on the Ark. Nope. So that, that's just one class of, of animals. So, so if we, we look at you know, the geological column, you know, even if we don't accept the ages, Cambrian isn't 500 million years ago, it was like 5,000. It doesn't matter. You, know, you don't have 
a mechanism. And again, we should have things like C14, which we don't. We should have DNA, which we don't. The geological evidence just doesn't match it. You can't create a flood that is violent enough to wipe out all of these marine creatures and leave their tracks intact. Baffling. Yeah. So one of my, my tactics is, is you, know, you don't, don't get onto dinosaurs, because unless you're, you know dinosaurs well, and you can go from, you know, why, why do allosaurs die before Tyrannosauruses? And... Well, it's clearly not my field of yeah. expertise. My dinosaur knowledge basically topped out in year two, I think. Yep. Well, <laughs> I, I, I like trilobites. No, no creationist has ever given me an explanation of how trilobites could all die in that fashion. Rightio. Was there any other point that you wanted to touch on? I think there are a couple of points. Just if, if I can indulge two more points. Yeah, sure. Uh, and you can, there was also that misrepresentation of science. We, we don't accept assumptions uncritically. You know, we follow the evidence. We challenge our assumptions all the time. You know, this is why we've gone from thinking that there was a benevolent creator who put everything on Earth in 1800 to realising it was you know, a natural process by 1900. So, so the idea that you know, scientists perhaps you know, try and get things to conform to assumptions or ideas is, is another sort of misrepresentation. That, that, well, that was the I point that, uh, that Tim raised, that when a scientist does an experiment, he's aiming towards a certain goal or expecting a certain outcome. And that, that didn't sit right with me because I would no. think that we're trying to find all the possible outcomes. Yeah, and we're actually usually trying to prove things wrong, not trying to prove things right. You know, the whole thing about, I think, something like land bridges. We originally thought land bridges were how animals got from point A to point B, and we could see that the Bering Strait used to have a land bridge, so that explains why we have alligators in China and alligators in America, right? So, the, But the assumption that we can use land bridges all the time you know, basically didn't work. And, and once plate tectonics was figured out, you know, we were fine. That was, you know, we didn't keep going, but, you know, Let's keep creating these land bridges along our original assumptions. No, change and you examine all the time. Another interesting one we have, and this relates a little bit to the whole radioactive decay, we also would wipe out life on Earth with volcanism. That's not a Star Trek reference. We're talking... No, volcanoes. Of course. So, so what are we looking at here? Well, you know, volcanoes, we know, we know what volcanoes look like when they erupt underwater and we know when they look like when they erupt above land mm-hmm. because Hawaii gives us all sorts of examples. So we could go to something like the Siberian Traps. And the Siberian Traps basically is a giant volcanic plateau that covers most of Siberia. And it was, by our calculations, formed in the Permian over about a million years and coincided with the, the, the greatest extinction event we've ever seen. Almost everything died in the Permian, late Permian. And, and part of that was just the massive amounts of material that was ejected by this eruption. You know, when you're covering a large area of Russia, which is not a small place. No, Russia's huge. <laughs> yeah, in a giant volcanic plateau. And calculations are there's, there's, there's over 20 million cubic kilometres of ash and gas and particulates that would have been put into the atmosphere. Right. Okay, so you can look at that and you can look at also at India with the, the forming of the Deccan Traps there, which is similar. You know, New Zealand has this big, giant volcanic plateau in the middle of the North Island. You know, we know. So now, suddenly we've got to put all of this particulates into the air, all this gas, and give you some idea of, of what that would mean. If we, if we look at the eruption of Mount Tambor in 1816 in the Indian Ocean. Okay, that's tiny. That's, that's a midget, nothing. You know, that, that was enough to, to cause a year without summer. Two successive winters. There was crop famine, people died in Europe and North America. I wasn't aware of that. So just one tiny volcano 
erupting was enough to cause global cooling and then, then we take an event that we think was catastrophic for the planet that occurred over a million years that wiped out almost all life and we want to put 20 million cubic kilometres of, of gas and other things into the atmosphere a few hundred years ago. There is no way life on Earth would be able to survive the, the incredible cooling that would produce produce all the the changes to the atmosphere we would see that in ice cores when we pull them out of greenland and, and mountains whatever ice cores are left you know, assuming there'd be anything left yeah, yeah. there's nothing it's not just the radiometric data and i think this is one of one of your your problems is you let them just deal to the radiometric stuff right by being able to close down the other lines of evidence you know he was able to tell a good story which i add up yeah whereas if you start going well, what about all this other stuff how, how do you escape death by radiation? How do you escape death by the Earth being poisoned by volcanoes? Um, that's even before we get to the genetic problems and all the other things that every one of these, these ideas creates. Um, the problem with young Earth creationism is, is every way we look at it, it seems to result, well, it must result in the death of the, the planet. And yet we're still here. Yeah, which is pretty good evidence. <laughs> it didn't happen. Okay, so if you had a debating tip for me, one single thing that I could take away from this, what would it be? Don't let him frame the debate. You're right. One of the points that I heard in another podcast was stick to how do you know? Just keep yep. asking the question, how do you know? Yeah, you've got to be able to assess that too. See, I can ask you these questions from a completely different perspective, from a science perspective. I can say, okay, how do you know? And you actually can give me quantifiable, verifiable, peer-reviewed answers. Whereas when you begin throwing these same questions back at a believer, a young earth creationist, it's very vague and there's a lot of imagination required to get all the boxes ticked. Yeah, and I think it's it's even harder with modern young earth creationists because they have such a committed way to seeing the world that trying to break into that is 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 difficult for a questioner they are very well schooled yeah and there's i imagine they look they'd watch shows on youtube in the same way that i watch hitchens and dawkins talk on youtube yeah and try and pick up debating techniques and and learn and and i think they have have a an advantage because they come from a, a culture or community where being able able to be articulate gets you promoted if you're able to you know communicate well verbally to the the congregation and the like you, you do well perhaps i need a career change I need to get out of <laughs> podcasting and go into being an evangelical because i don't have to then rely yeah. on evidence i don't have to have a kaimato in my back pocket <laughs> yeah i think you you had the, the right instinct when you brought up the fossils mm-hmm. but you know I, I think you made a tactical mistake by going into to dinosaurs rather than something like trilobites hopefully what i've just laid out for you with trilobites is explain this it's a lot for somebody who's not an expert to to learn but what i will do is listen back to this podcast probably 50 or 60 times right and in such a way that i can then parrot you in the future yeah. and just say a gentleman who i've never met told me this must be yeah. true well, I mean, this is, I, mean I, I try and bring up trilobites because people should be familiar with them. You, you can look them up easily on the web. Hmm. People know what trilobites are. They're actually one of the most common fossils we have. Well, they're a very resilient animal Oh, yeah. in much the same way that cockroaches. Yeah, and, and we, you know, we think about trilobites. You know, I don't think you have to be an expert on trilobites. You just have to realise that you know, there is something really wrong about trying to drown an animal that lives underwater. You know, there is something wrong about going, you know, this is a violent flood, but all the tracks are still there. If you actually look at a lot of the creationist web pages and the like, they, they stay away from things like trilobites. Right. They'll have a lot of stuff on dinosaurs. 
but they're not going to have a lot of stuff on things like trilobites, which are really, really hard to explain. The, the tactics are to try and get the debate framed in a way they can talk about something they're comfortable with, dinosaur fossils, and try and avoid getting the debate pushed into an area they're not good with, which is trilobites or ammonites or placoderm fish or So something. really what I should do is, in the future, is keep everything on my terms wherever possible yep. and become a specialist in a certain key field. Yeah, this is why I don't know where you, you've seen me work on Twitter. I don't tend to let them frame the debate. You know, if they go, let's talk about fossils, I go, let's talk about the molecular evidence. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about evolution? Molecular biology, that's where we're going to do it. Because you know, they've all had the, the books by Gish and the like, and they've all read that stuff, and they can all parrot these lines about gaps and blah, blah, blah. Mm. There's some, some areas that they just cannot working and and that's where i think if you can press them you'll get the points i yeah i kind kind of felt that you did okay at the start and then just ran away on you yeah it was really hard because i went in there thinking that i knew a lot of the answers right and yet felt challenged in such a way where it was said with such conviction that i exactly i began to doubt myself so one of the things that i subsequently went and had a bit of a look into afterwards was i pointed out that you know god endorses slavery and he said oh no 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 yeah. Oh, that, that's not in the New Testament. That's all the Old Testament. <laughs> so, and that shocked me to a point where I didn't know how to react. But yeah, he does endorse slavery. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think that's part of the, the trip of their community, the environment. If you say something with confidence, people start to believe you. Because why would you say something with confidence if you didn't use that? So it's, it's a nice rhetorical trick. You know? And he, he got you on, on some of the science. He used sciencey words, prediction assumptions and the like. I thought I would have been immune to this, having been a big fan of Deepak Chopra for a long time. Deepak Comfort, of the Universe. <laughs> but clearly not. No, and, and I, I think you wanted to like him and you wanted to get to his perspective and you know, they're, they're, they're devious. I have a, a deep suspicion of them. <laughs> Isn't it funny how atheists are so untrusted right and yet really logically as a group we should be the most trusted yeah yeah we, we don't have any recruitment agendas or, or the like if you're talking like a young earth creationist i mean yeah, they've got a simple mission and that's basically to destroy modern biology you know that they come across as reasonable and you think they're being reasonable but but they're not they're not reasonable people that they need to act reasonable to get influence see i felt that I was trying to be reasonable but fair. And I, yeah. w- I wasn't trying to uh, mislead or inject different stories into the argument here sure. and there. I, I could see you trying very hard to be fair, and I, I could see he was taking advantage of that. Big shout-out um, to you, Tim. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. <laughs> okay. uh, because, in a way, you're fodder for me to learn. In fact, yeah. to be fair to Tim, he also said, because when I mentioned to him that I was going to have a chat with you to yeah. dissect some of these arguments, he said, oh, look, if you'd like to be taught on how to counter these arguments, I'm happy to teach you. Because <laughs> <laughs> he knows them all, and I know yeah. very few of them. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've never seen anything that escapes the whole radiation death thing well, of the planet. Well, that's one I'm going to have to Other than with. another. There was another miracle. Ah, see, those miracles, they're the tricky ones, aren't they? Yeah. And, but what they come down to is, is then you can't say you're doing science because you're throwing out ad hoc hypotheses that are unfalsifiable, and that is an anathema to science. So I, f- I went into the debate on his terms. We didn't yep. stick to the science. And, you know, I think you probably should have schooled yourself up on, on some of this stuff. Because every young earth creationist 
is, is going to have a lot of stuff on fossils and dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. They're all going to, have to be primed on radiometric dating. Mm-hmm. What they're not going to be up on is, is things like the Cambrian trilobites. They're not going to be up on volcanism. They're not going to be up on molecular biology. All right. This is wise advice. Kaimatai, thank you very much for coming on. You've been a gentleman. Okay. And, thank you. And uh, I've learned a great deal. Wonderful. Is there one thing you'd like to shout out? You've got your Q&A account up. Yeah. I've got the Evolution Q&A account up. And I think, yeah, it's a good one. And it's, it's for people who actually have questions about evolution. Hmm. It's not a debating place for creationists. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, if you want to know something about evolution, you know, try me. And you might have noticed I'm also putting out some stuff on basic evolution as well. Mm-hmm. Examples of speciation events, etc. Try and educate quite, the masses. I've seen quite a few articles coming out in your feed of late. Kaimato, thank you very much for coming on. You can be followed at Kaimato, K-A-I-M-A-T-A-I on Twitter, and I'll speak to you on the internet. Cool. Okay, bye. If you enjoy the Herd Mentality podcast, please help me reach my goal of 200 tithers to make this sustainable. Currently, I'm at 15% of the target. Head to herdmentalitypodcast.com and click the support link, and your name will be enshrined on the banner at the top for all to see. Many thanks.